before we get into Revelation chapter 21, um, I want to give you this book. It's called Heaven. Most of you are probably familiar uh, with this book by Randy Alcorn. Fabulous. I mean, look at the thickness of it. Do you have questions in regards to what our eternal state is going to be, what the Bible says about heaven, what the Bible says about, about the millennium, just all those kinds of questions. Almost every single chapter is, begins with the question, walks through the Word of God. Fabulous resource. Because that's what we're talking about this morning is the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And just to give you a, like the major outline of the Bible, the first two chapters of Genesis deal with God creating the heavens and the earth. And where we're sitting in Revelation today, it calls this heaven and this earth, this earth that we live on right now, the first. This is the first heaven and the first earth that God has created. And that environment that God placed Adam and Eve to as he created them in his image is totally foreign to us. We have to sit in our imagination to understand Genesis 1 and 2, what it is that God created. Because we sit in Genesis 3 in the fall, and all of a sudden we all recognize that. Because we live in Genesis 3 through Revelation 19, or Revelation 20. Revelation 21 and 22, again, you have to sit in your imagination of what is it that was lost, and not only what was it that was lost in the first creation, in that relationship that Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had with God, and what was lost in that separation. Like, we all sit in the lostness of it, and in Jesus Christ, through salvation in him and with him, we have this foretaste. Like, the Bible talks a lot about past, present, and future. God is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. We sit in, we're going to talk about this question of what is it that God has saved you from this morning? But the, there's this idea in the New Testament that God, through faith in Jesus Christ, there, were, there was a moment in history where he saved you. He delivered you out of danger. He delivered you out of death. He delivered you out of sin. And he saved you historically, that moment of faith. Then there's this major idea that as we walk with Christ, he is continuing to save us. It's a present tense activity and transformation that we're all going through as we follow Jesus. And then there's this future state. We shall be saved in the future. And that's what we're talking about this morning in Revelation 21. Here's this culmination. The past, what was first, is completely done away with. And now we get to sit in our imagination and the, the passion and the hope and the confidence of what it is that we will be in God for all eternity. So we got to let our imagination loose. Before we get into Revelation 21 this morning, I want to give you an apology and a confession. So last week, we finished 20, chapter 20, and you're dealing with the great white throne judgment where all of those, we are told that anyone and everyone whose name is not found written in our Lamb's book of life is cast into this eternal lake of fire. And I made the comment, you know, like let's end on some good news. So we went to a different passage and ended on, you know, uh, 
a happier subject matter. Last week, as I, you know, I stepped down from here and I'm sitting there taking communion with the Lord, just instantly convicted. Like that, the reality that our God is going to do away with death, with hell, with all sin, and with everybody who rejects him, that is good news. I sit continually, I, I mentioned to Dave last night that uh, I don't like teaching through Revelation. And I've mentioned it multiple times. It's a horrific prophecy. And it's horrific because the mourning and the grief goes out to all of those who oppose God. We want them to know. We want them to turn. We want them to come. And that's what ultimately, that's what this prophecy is all about. It's a revelation of Jesus and it's a revelation of his work. And it's a revelation of his call to all to come. Turn, come out of Babylon, come out of your sin, come to me, whosoever wills, come. And that's good news. And it is good news that he will do away with and remove from himself for all eternity those who would corrupt his holiness. Because ultimately that's what sin is in the beginning. It's this corruption and he's going to do away with it. And we stand in, in praise of God that he will have this ultimate judgment in the future. There will no longer be sin. There will no longer be death. Everything will be made new. We sit in a grief of it. But even in this morning, in this section of the prophecy, there's going to be a day where God's going to wipe away all of these tears, all of this sorrow, all of this pain, and through faith in Jesus Christ, we are going to abide in his light and his glory and his new creation for all eternity. Amen. Good news. So forgive me for saying that God's judgment is not good news, because it is. And I've, I've, I've brought this question up a couple of times before, just sitting in, sitting in the word of God. I, can you sit in praise of God for the flood? If you can't, let God get your heart there. Can you sit in praise of God for the great white throne judgment? Lord, it's hard. I don't want anybody to reject. I don't want to reject you. You're the one that's transformed my heart, Lord. Anybody who's still sitting in darkness and disobedient, get them, Lord. Get them with your love. Get them with the gospel. Give them the ability to bend the knee and the heart and the mind to you. Give to us the courage to follow you. Oh, that's going to be a big word in a moment, courage. All right, Revelation 21. Let's read through it. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Also there was no more sea than I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe out, wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, 
There shall be no more pain, for the former, literally the first things, have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. In the Greek, it's the present tense, literally, I am making all things new, each and everything. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Another warning, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part, their share in the lake of fire, which, uh, in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, literally now I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirits to a great and high mountain and showed me, and it's literally made known to me, the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. What's a furlong? Well, we'll get there. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysophrase. I don't even know what chrys... I can say that five times fast. Say it once. Jacinth, amethyst, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, 
The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the warnings and the contrast continue in this prophecy, even as the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem is declared. Here's kind of the outline that we're going to sit in this morning. We're going to look at the source of this new heaven and the new earth. Again, here our God is revealing himself, his plans, and his purposes to us so that we can have hope and confidence in the future. We're going to discuss the place a little bit, and then we're going to not, uh, we're going to press into the contrast of those who are on the outside, beginning with this word coward and what it means, but really what we're going to emphasize upon is that transformation that he creates within us. If a coward is left on the outside and is not left, his name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then what is its character quality? What is its opposite? What is God creating in me and in you as he's transforming us into his image? So we'll sit in that at the end. But first here, God's revealing his heart. And again, this is plan A. We're told that right now we live in his first creation where he created the heavens and the earth in the beginning and you can go sit in Genesis 1 and 2 and all the glory of it. We sit right now in all of the brokenness, but here is God revealing to us the end. There is coming a day. So last week at the great white throne judgment, we are told that the earth and the heaven fled away from him. Isaiah 65, there's another prophecy there in regards to this undoing of the first, what we dwell in now, this earth, this heaven, and heaven is, there's, there's three different ideas when it comes to heaven. Heaven is the atmosphere where the birds fly. Heaven is also the, the universe where God has placed the stars. And then you have heaven as the dwelling place of God. Heaven as the dwelling place of God is understood to be a, an aspect of God's creation. God ha, is outside of his creation. So one, is, is heaven only a physical place, well, only a spiritual place, or is it a physical place also? Again, that book that I just pointed to asks, helps answer all these questions that we can't get in the depth of this morning. But what we understand that he is going to undo is this earth is gone away because it's broken by sin. All of his creation, the heaven where the birds fly, the heaven where the stars are, all of it will be undone. It is in a state of corruption. It is in a state of falling apart. And it is going to be undone because sin has had an effect on everything. And just as he has promised to us that we are in corruptible bodies now, he has promised us that there is a future that he is going to give to us an incorruptible body. He is also going to recreate a new, fresh, incorruptible earth, an incorruptible heaven that will never know the flavor and taste of darkness and sin. All things shall be made new. And it's, it's a beautiful promise that, again, just 
Let your brain for its microseconds sit in what kind of power, what is it that God is, that one, that he could speak this creation into existence in the first place? And what is it, what is it in his power that he can undo the first and that he can speak what is new? And again, we're sitting in this description of his power and the promise of everything associated with it, but everything revolves around him. He is creating a place for his creation that he created in his image in the first place, where he has revived us, given us life in him. He has removed our corruption, removed our sin, removed our death, redeemed us, recreated us, given us an incorruptible body that will be able to see him, know him, be one with him and one with each other. This environment that he's promised in the future is absolute perfection. It is the, it is the epitome, it is the climax of all that he is in revelation and creation in his light in his love, in his glory, in his splendor, in his majesty. It, it, this is one of these things, like as we meditate on his future promises, these are things that are to excite us. They are things to, that purify us. They are, they are thoughts that motivate us in regards to our relationship with him today. All that we like yearn for and long for, the creation itself is groaning for this event. And look at look, the description that's given. Everything is dealing with, uh, it's, it's reflecting his glory. All the, the pictures of all the different stones, all these different stones, and there's discussions on what they are and what colors they are. It gives us this whole spectrum of light. His radiance, his glory, as, as light hits glass and crystal and stones and gems, how it reflects and refracts. It's, it's all a description of God as light and his splendor and his glory. There's no need for a sun. He's the source of the light. There's no need for a moon. There's no need for, there is no night there. We're not going to be counting day and night and seasons any longer. Those things are not necessary. They're parts of the first creation and have a purpose in the first creation. In the eternity, not necessary. Because, and listen to this, at the very end it said, the Lord God Almighty, our Almighty Father, He is the light, He is the temple, it also says that the lamb is the light and the glory in the temple. What does that mean? Jesus is God. Our God, whatever he is as a spirit, chose this. And the purpose that he chose all of this was to bring about us in his presence for all eternity, reflecting back to him his glory and his majesty. It'll never get boring. It'll never get ugly. It is going to be glorious. Now look at the description. I talked about the furlong. What's a furlong? Well, in the Greek, it's a stadia. It's roughly one-eighth of a mile. So the, the measurement of this city 
I've seen it the lowest, depending on the calculation, 1,380 miles. I've seen 1,400 miles, and I've seen 1,500 miles. So perspective, length, breadth, and height are all the same. So we get this image of a cube. It could be a cube, which gives us reference to the Holy of Holies. So when God gave instructions to Moses and the children of Israel to construct the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat, the lid of this box where God said that he was going to meet and dwell in the midst of Israel, that area of the tent, the Holy of Holies, is a cube. So more than likely, the imagery that we have in the tent and the tabernacle of the Holy of Holies is a shadow of the eternity that God is giving to us. Here is this cube. It can also be a pyramid, and I kind of like geeking out on that too, just because the pyramids of Giza and whatever, you can, just so you know, both a cube and a pyramid both fit the description. Regardless, to give us a visual understanding of that size of a city and the description that's being given to us is roughly the size of the moon. Got enough space for you? But again, you place the moon on this earth, is it going to fit? You take the map of the United States of America and draw a line from Maine to Florida to California, and that square, that's, that's the square foundation of this city. It doesn't fit this earth, the first earth. So the future earth, in its size, in its grandeur, in its splendor, splendor mega. What a... Um, you know, people sit there and geek out on all the math. I think it was, I think it was Henry Morris walked through. Oh, right. If this many people have been alive throughout history and this percentage of people are going to be in heaven as, as believers in Jesus Christ, everybody's going to have roughly 75 acres to themselves. You want 75 acres? Again, that's all speculation. But what it is to communicate, plenty of space. And all of this, this isn't, you know... I need my space for my neighbor. We're all going to be as one in him in unity and harmony and love and likeness. Like we're not just going to love each other, but we're going to like each other for all eternity. Awesome. Incredible descriptions. In, this, in the descriptions of heaven, so you have its size and its volume. But it's given us uh, this, um, the parameters of this wall. And a wall is always for fortification, right? You know, you put up a wall as defense. And again, the, the imagery that it's going to convey to us is that there is nothing in opposition to God that it's not even going to exist. But the imagery is to, give it, to let us know that it will never enter in. So this, this, this wall is, two, if, it's, if it's the same measurements of height and width, it's 250 feet. 250-foot thick wall, 250 feet high. Is anything going to conquer that, come through that? No. But in there, it says, it gives us this description of these foundation stones. So let's say the measurements, it's 1,500 miles. Each one of these foundation stones, 500 miles. And in the middle of each one of those foundation stones, there's a gate, one gigantic pearl. At each one of those gates, an angel as a messenger, standing guard, 
I don't think so. Representing these gates, they never close. They're not necessary. But again, it communicates an image that nothing will ever come in that is corruptible, that is dark. It's not welcome. It's been done away with and removed. Here's an image of the new kingdom. On those foundation stones, the names of Jesus' 12 apostles. Well, why are they so special? God created them. He called them. He appointed them. He taught them. He led them. He sent them out. We are told that it's on the foundation stone of the apostles and the prophets that his church is built. It's not the foundation of these men's character. It's the foundation of the character that Jesus created in them. It's the foundation of the message that he placed into their mouths. It's the foundation as they went out into the world and preached this gospel. That's what it's communicating to us. The bedrock, the foundation of entering into this structure is through the message of the apostles and the prophets. That's why we sit in the word of God. As often as we gather together, we study, we read, and we teach the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. And that's not theirs. It's the fathers. It's the sons. It's the spirits. We take what our God has given to us, and we proclaim it to one another. And again, here's an image for all eternity. That message will continue to be proclaimed. Whose names are on the gates? Twelve sons of Israel. God's not done with the nation of Israel. He has given to Abraham promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. Even though there's all these issues in the family and, you know, all these different women that the children were produced from, here's the twelve tribes representing, again, God choosing, God creating, God revealing himself, giving his word, giving promises to, restoration, redemption, righteousness, justice, all of these promises that he gave to the nation of Israel. Again, there is this, here's this future promise that there is no longer Jew or Gentile. We are one in Christ. There's no longer male or female, slave or free. However, as we sit in all of the promises that he gave to the nation of Israel, he will fulfill all of those things. The apostles, they're all children of Israel. As believers in Jesus Christ, we've all been grafted in to the nation of Israel. And again, we're given this imagery of his new heaven and his new earth and all of the splendor. It is all imaging him and his will and his plans and his desire and his redemption and his glory. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Now, in our time that we have remaining, I want to ask you this question. I want you to write it down, and I want you to define this in prayer and worship and your relationship with God. What is it that he has saved you from? How, what is it that you need him to save you from? In salvation, what are the promises that he's given to you? Like if you, as you've sat in his word, how has the Holy Spirit spoken to you? I've saved you. I am saving you. 
I will save you. Past, present, and future. Because listen, it says here in verse 24 that the nations of those who are saved shall walk, shall live in his light for all eternity. So salvation, again, it's the, the word has everything to do with you have been delivered out of danger. Whether it's sin, whether it's death, whatever that circumstance of life is, bad health, there's a, there's a danger. And you have no means of removing yourself from that danger. He is your Savior. Again, as we sit in the definition of what it is that Jesus has saved us on the cross through his substitutionary sacrifice, what it means that he saved me from my sins, what it means that he saved me from death, how he's delivered me out of circumstances, how he is transforming my nature and my character into his. He continues to save me today. I have this great hope of a future resurrection, of incorruption, everything that we just read through. But often to answer this question, um, as we sit in the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, often we focus on the prodigal, right? So here's this guy that demanded from his dad, give me my inheritance now, and he goes and spends it on loose living. Finds himself in a, in a pigsty, wakes up, comes to himself, and returns back to the father. And all that, there, there's all of this imagery in regards to the heart of the father, the heart of the prodigal turning back. We celebrate this incredible testimony of the prodigal son, right? But in that, you can also really sit in the son that remained. So often in the church, we glorify to the greater degree those who have this incredible story of testimony of what it is that God has saved us from. Especially like in Calvary chapels. You guys know who Mike McIntosh is? We're going to talk about drugs in a minute. Mike McIntosh's mind was so messed up on LSD, he thought, his, he, like when he looked in the mirror, he saw his head blown off. Because when he was on drugs, somebody put a gun to his head and played Russian roulette and pulled the trigger. There was no bullet that went off, but he thought a bullet went off. This man was insane. And Jesus stepped in and transformed his mind saved him from his sin, saved him from his insanity. Horizon Christian Fellowship in San Diego, for those of you who know his teaching and the ministry, incredible. How many of you guys know Raul Reese? Raul Reese, Calvary Chapel, what is it, uh, Golden Springs, Diamond Bar, California. This guy was sitting in his house with a gun in his hand, going to kill his wife and going to kill himself. He's got the TV on and he hears the gospel. Incredible testimony, yeah? And then those of you know the ministry that's, that he's been engaged in and what the Lord's done. We have story after story after story of all these incredible testimonies. Some of you were that son that you stayed with the father the whole time. You were born into a family who knew Jesus, knows Jesus. They shared the gospel with you from birth. You don't have these incredible scars of sin. And sometimes that can be a harder life to define in what is it that God has saved you from. But yet as you answer that question in prayer and in worship towards God, he reveals to us, yes? Now let's sit in these words that give us the contrast. And I'm not going to sit on the negative. We're going to sit in the positive. So first, like, what's a coward? 
The first time, I, again, I read this word, it's why is that the first word in this list of sins? Like I figure, you know, sexual immorality, murderers, those, those would be at the top of the list. But why is coward at the top of the list? It's one of those things, like you read, and I don't know why, and you just run on. And, you know, the Lord's really revealed over time, what is it that a coward is? It's the opposite of courage, Right? But and it, being a coward in your relationship with Christ, it's not that you're timid in your personality. It's not that you're fearful. It's that you turn away. So again, the, the, the contrast, the opposite of being a coward is somebody who is bold in their faith and relationship with Christ. And as I was looking up synonyms, I love this one, audacious. Like, like, seriously, the Lord takes us, and as he transforms us, he takes each and every one of us who is a coward, who is fearful, who, again, just this is a simple thing. Like, what I'm doing right now, I do not like public speaking. This is something that, I, that causes me timidity in. It's not something that I seek out. But it's something that, okay, God, you, you are telling me to do this. I will do it. That takes his courage and his boldness and his transformation in me. First time I ever taught from like a pulpit scenario, I got down and I said, I will never do that again. And here I am. But again, it takes courage to go back in children's ministry, right? It takes courage to go downtown and to be salt and light to, in a circumstance that makes you uncomfortable. So all of a sudden, it's, it's all right. I understand why cur cowards are on the outside. It's because a coward doesn't trust. A coward turns away and remains in that timidity. And may God make me audacious in my faith and relation. Just, I, I, I like that word. It's fun to say, audacious. Second one is unbelieving. Unbelief kept the children of Israel out of the promised land. Unbelief is a lack of faith. But as we sit in the, the antonym of unbelief, here are the words. Firm, steadfast, solid, and obedient. So Lord, take out of me the unbelieving heart and create in me a heart that is firm, that is solid. Not the, not the hard heart that won't allow your seed to penetrate it. But again, that, that steadfastness in the Lord, that endurance. Lord, may you make me firm. May you make me obedient. Abominable. Abominable is something that God hates. That's some, it's something that he detests. He abhors. So when you think about what sin is and all those who are in sin, children of wrath, children of disobedience, abomination, abominable in God's sight. Listen to the contrast. We become desirable favored and approved. Think, of it, think about that again, the transition through coming to the almighty God through faith in Jesus Christ. He now looks at you, like that, let's say that master-servant relationship, well done, good and faithful servant. He blesses us. He favors us. 
No longer something that he would cast away into the second death, but now through faith in Jesus Christ, you are now, like, just, just meditate in that. You've been stamped in the image of Christ, stamped with his approval. He likes you. He loves you. He desires you. What does a murderer do? Takes somebody who has life and ends that life. So what's the contrast? Somebody who takes a dead person and makes them alive. What an, what an incredible calling we have from him. That he allows us to walk alongside of dead people and proclaim to him his life-giving words to bring about revival, restoration. Those who are slumbering, he lets us help them come awake. Who did God use in your life to preach the words of revival to you? And this, this specific one, this is, this is what I say in my messaging with the Lord in regards to my relationship with him. He's, he used Ezra and Nehemiah heavily where they're walking around this broken city, the broken temple, the broken walls of Jerusalem. And that whole process as he's sending Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and just those accounts in the word of God, they're bringing about revival in this dead judged community. They're bringing about restoration, waking people up. I love it. Sexual immorality, we know what immoral behavior is. It's opposite. Lord, may you create in me a chaste heart, a pure heart, a spotless heart, mind, life. How about a sorcerer? This is what I said that we were going to talk about drugs in a minute. Uh, the word for sorcerer is literally, it's a, it's a poisoner. So a sorcerer in, in this context and this, at this time, you know, this is somebody who is sitting in the occult and the magic and the healer and sitting in drugs, um, whether it's for hallucinogenic stuff or the power of the occult to bring about Whatever. But the opposite of a poisoner, somebody who's going to bring about death in your life, is what? A healer. Again, we sit in the healing of God's word. Total side note, I just read an article last week. Hallucinogenic drugs are being used to its, their greatest degree since 1982 in our culture. There's been a major resurgence in expanding the mind. And in, the, in this year and a half of isolation of COVID, here's, here's a way to bring us together through tripping out on drugs. Really weird, very demonic, brings about poison. It's opposite. Jesus brings about healer. An idolater, somebody who is worshiping something other than God. So the opposite would be a worshiper's servant and friend of God. Every single one of us, the core of who we are apart from God is, is an idolater. We worship all of these other things than the true and living God. 
And he has brought us to himself, and he has made us a worshiper and servant and his friends. What, a, what an incredible promise. Liars saddened so much in, in the imagery in regards to the activity of Satan, all the falsehoods that he pronounces. But this isn't, this isn't just... Um, This isn't just telling other people lies and preaching false doctrine. No, this is, this is lying to yourself. This is lying to God. And again, the opposite is true, right? We just read in this passage, this prophecy already, that these are true and faithful words. Earlier in chapter 19, when Jesus comes back, his name, faithful and true. So again, liars... The opposite of God, they are kept out, they're excluded. But what has he made us? He has made us true. He has made us real. Another fun word, he has made us voracious. The end, there were a couple more words of those who are uh, on the outside that do not enter. Uh, one of those is that which defiles so he causes us in our relationship. He has cleansed us and he has purged us, but he uses us to cleanse and purge others. And again, that which causes an abomination, that opposite is holiness and sanctity. So quickly, listen to all of Jesus' character all that we do not have on our own, but all that he has given to us as he makes us new, is making us new. And again, this is the work and the action of God in our lives. He makes us daring, bold, audacious, firm, steadfast, solid, obedient, desired, favored, approved, revived, restored, awakened, chaste, pure, spotless, healed, a worshiper, servant, and friend of God, true, real, voracious, clean, and purged, holy, and sanctified. Amen. Look at verse 6. Worship team, come on up. But here's our future hope. He is making all things new, and there is coming a day out of the mouth of the Almighty God that it is done. He is who he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega, He's the beginning of the end. I want each one of you to sit in this promise now, tomorrow, and for all eternity. If you are thirsty, he promises to give to you the water of life. He promises victory. He promises you a conquering life. You who overcome through faith in Jesus Christ, you will inherit all things. The being who created the heavens and the earth, 
shall undo everything that is corrupt and he will recreate you in incorruption. He will recreate the heavens and the earth in incorruption and he will be your God and you shall be his child. You will walk and live in his light in his glory, in his splendor for all eternity. Our God, we believe. Our God, we trust. And our God, we ask you to make us to be who you've created us to be today and tomorrow and for all eternity. Lord, let us rejoice greatly in all of your promises. Kill my coward, Lord, and keep me awake in your audacious courage day in and day out because you are worthy to be trusted. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.